We're looking at Psalm 23 today, and this is a fascinating passage. This psalm has traditionally been used, and most, most often it's used in funeral services. That's where we've heard it. What's interesting for me is I kind of look back over my notes of 20 years, and I've never preached Psalm 23 before that I uh, found records of. So I'm excited to bring some insight on Psalm 23 today, but for it to really land, I want you to know I feel like we're going to have to shift a little bit and we're not going to be able to see Psalm 23 in that traditional lens of we're at a funeral service and we need to be comforted because somebody's passing from death to life and we're hoping that God's putting his arm around that person and carrying them to some heavenly golf course. It's, it's really not what is happening in this psalm. You're going to see that this psalm is much more of a call to bring heaven to earth than to take earthlings up into heaven. So stay with me on that. And, uh, first of all, I just even want you to look at the position of the psalm. Psalm 23 is obviously between Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. Psalm 22 is one of the most powerful psalms ever written. In fact, it's a total psalm of moving from victim to victor. Jesus even quotes Psalm 22 while on the cross, and he's moving to that place of overcoming. And then Psalm 24 is this exciting, amazing psalm of how it is that the victors, the believers, will be dancing on their way of ascending the hill into heaven. And in the middle of this is we find Psalm 23, which I think is sandwiched beautifully in such a way that says, and this is what it's gonna be like on earth right now. So first of all, as we shift this lens, lens, I, I wanna take you to really the first funeral service that I ever preached. I had uh, preached at a, uh, service for a family member one time, but it's just a graveside. And then while I was at seminary in California, uh, I had a person come up to me and say, hey, look, a, a friend of mine was literally stabbed to death by a, a jealous girlfriend, and there's nobody there to uh, preach at his funeral service. Would you do that? And I said, sure, I would do that. And they gave me the information. And I showed up at the funeral service. It was a, a nighttime service, and I was just shocked when I pulled up. I pulled up, and you just have to be able to see this. The place was crowded. It was one of the largest gatherings. I couldn't even find a place to park. I pull in, and this old seasoned guy from the funeral service comes up, and he looks at me, and he could tell I'm feeling awkward, and he says, are you the preacher? And I said, yes, yes, I am. And he looks at me, and he just says, <laughs> I mean, this really kind of shook me a little bit, but he said, have you ever preached a funeral service before? And I said, uh, no, no, this is my first one. And he said, hey, I've got an idea. I'll do the beginning, I'll open this, and then I'll hand it over to you and you'll do the close. I said, hey, that'd be wonderful, thanks. So we go in and again, the place is packed. We get up and it's a, a, you know, an open coffin uh, service. You're, it's set up to where you're on a platform. The body of Charles was uh, in the casket below us and then uh, the family was seated in the first row and I got there and I literally, I was just feeling nervous. Like, what do you really say to bring comfort to all these people? This person died in a really difficult way. How, how are we going to do this? And I had prepared a passage on how God comforts us in the middle of tragedy. There's always uh, an opportunity to lean into him. So I felt good about that portion of it. Well, this old seasoned pastor gets up. And he starts right off by acknowledging tragedy. And he said, we're going to face tragedy on earth. And, and he said, our responsibility is to not to ex, uh, expect that we won't face it, 
but to know that we will and that when we do face it, we need friends. We need people like Charles. And then he just went and moved on and started talking about how Charles had made people's lives better and different and how he was an amazing source of not only comfort, but an encouragement to walk a victorious life. And then he moved on and he said, what we really want to do today is walk with Charles in a victory lap as he's going home and in such a way that we're telling him that we're going to walk in that victory while still on earth. And then the, the whole kind of countenance of the place just shifted. They got it. It wasn't about us being comforted because we're weak, needy people. It was about us needing to be encouraged to fight this good fight. So I get up and he, and he actually says, and now we're going to hear from uh, Reverend Schaefer. So I get up. And I just scratched my notes and I just said, I'm, I'm going with this. And so I just thought of what is the most powerful statement of when somebody really led that victorious life. And I thought of Jesus uh, raising Lazarus, you know, from the dead. So I went straight there and I said, friends, there's a point at which Jesus came to those who were in deep mourning and he did a complete shift by raising Lazarus from the dead. And he's going to right now in, in his own way, say to Charles, Charles, come out of that cave or... And then I just decided to kind of really step out and I said, well, he's going to sound like this. And then I kind of like acted as though I was the voice of Jesus. And I said, Charles, come out of that coffin. And I, and I mean, it, it really kind of just felt like it could happen. And then I looked, as I was looking and saying it, the wife got up and walked to the coffin and took Charles's arm and started saying, wake up, wake up, get out of the coffin. And I'm just sitting here thinking, this is really happening. I, it, I couldn't believe it. And um, I mean, you almost had to be there. It was, it was pretty impacting. Um, but for whatever reason, Charles didn't feel led by God or whatever to get up out of the coffin. He, he stayed dead. And so she was trying harder. Then when she realized he wasn't going to get up, she actually started to crawl into the coffin. Uh, with him and it was it was really at this point I didn't know what to do my first funeral service and this amazing uh, pastor gets up and he says friends what we really need to do here is recognize that there is that time to mourn and time to hurt and then he nods at some deacons some deacons come they come along next to the lady they surround her and he says, and now what we're going to do is we're going to come and we're going to do our official viewing of Charles and we're all going to make a personal commitment to him that we will never let him go, but that we will always be reminded of how to live a victorious life. Let's all come and do the viewing and do our victory lap. And I was like so thankful the guy knew how to close it. And I, I, I was uh, impacted in a dramatic way that day. I had an hour drive home. And on the way home, I thought, what did I really do? And then I felt like the Lord said to me, Marty, what you actually did is you proved what you believed. You believed that I could raise somebody from the dead. You shared that and you imparted something much greater than a nice sense of comfort. You imparted a sense of overcoming death, which is the greatest comfort of all. And you might not have done it well and right, but that was the motive. And I think that the Lord was pleased, and I hope that today, even as we go to Psalm 23, that maybe a similar type of impartation could happen, where it's not, hey, this is a nice passage about how God takes care of his little sheep. Instead, it's this is how God sets up human beings to bring heaven 
to earth as if we are in a victory lap now. And that's how I see the passage. So I want you to look at it with me as I uh, read the passages for you, because what you're going to see in this passage is that it does truly begin with David talking about uh, God being his shepherd. So it's almost, if you, if you really understand it, what David's doing, and this is kind of weird, but David is giving the passage through the eyes of a sheep. He's turning into a sheep and because he says, God is my shepherd. He's not saying God is my father or human element. He's saying God is this shepherd and I'm a sheep. And so now he's looking at, he puts these lens on as this is how a sheep must feel about his or her shepherd. And that's really significant because you're going to see when we get to verse 4, which is the highlight of today, it starts to really transition from seeing ourselves as sheep and God as a shepherd to seeing ourselves as heirs of the Most High God and God as a victorious Father. It's a powerful shift, but we have to see it. So forget everything you've, you've sensed or the way that uh, pastors and preachers have framed this before as being a little sense of comfort at a funeral service and see this as a call to stand and bring forth heaven to a dying and hurting world where we actually show people and empower people how to take a victory lap with the time that they have. That is the strength of what we're about to see. So think about that. I'm going to read Psalm 23 with you verse by verse, and we're going to get an idea of how God is really setting us up to live this victorious life. Verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can you see the transition? Even just in verse 6, you that live dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Sheep don't live in houses. They live in pens. They, they are outdoor animals, not indoor animals. It's clear that he's moving to a place of, yes, we're little sheep, to wait a minute. We're part of the family of God, and in that we're really heirs of his kingdom. Again, in these first three verses, he states that the shepherd is setting up his sheep for success by making us lie down in green pastures. It reminds me of like putting your little toddler down to bed. You're going to make them go to bed on time. And then it says that he leads us by quiet waters, which reminds me of like taking your little child to the park where they can play and be safe and not spooked. And then it says he restores our soul. And I, I just see us in a place, even as that sheep or that child, of being encouraged to, yes, you can, yes, you can. And then I like it, he guides us into the path of righteousness, which is really him giving us an opportunity to transform this world and not to be tainted by it. Then he says he does it all for his name's sake. And here again, my friends, is the key of the transition. 
if, if we are his namesake, he's doing it because he has placed his name on us. Therefore, we're his children. Our last name, whether you can handle this or not, our last name is the same last name as God's. We have been put into his family. We carry his name. And for his name's sake, he is maturing us so that we can advance his kingdom. That's the power of it. Now let's dive into verse 4 where we see this movement from being a passive sheep uh, to an heir of God's kingdom. It's going to begin by this concept of even though. Even though is a powerful statement that sets the, the lens for this transition. I believe in God so much that even though whatever I see on planet Earth, whatever I see going around me, whatever hardship I'm in, whatever gap I feel, I believe in him so much, even though of all of this, I know that he is my victor, I know that he's my champion, he's my God, and it's time to prevail. Regardless of how hard it is, I am going on as if it's an in, in, inevitable win. That's the way we have to frame it. And so I don't really care that the odds are against me. In fact, in God's kingdom, that's just fine. But what I can't do is step back or step away. What I must do is lean in. And so here's the, the tricks to the knowing how to even, even though it correctly. And it's not a trick, but here's God's clues or God's ability to move us in that direction. The first is going to be, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and when you hear the shadow of death, you can understand why this has been used so many times in that funeral context. So we'll say, you know what, people, life on earth is just a shadow. And at this point, we're going to move from the shadow to the real. And I think there's truth to that. I see the value of it. But in the strength of what the psalmist is really saying is, even though when it seems like everything's so hard that the whole world's caving in and that's all going to collapse and that we're not going to make it, we might even die trying, even though of that, I'm going to move forward with God and doing those things he's called me to. And so that's not about dying. That's about living. That's about overcoming. That is the strength of what David is trying to impart for us. It's not that death is just a mere, merely a shadow. It's that death is a black hole. That's later. And that's not my focus. My focus is to bring the light and the life of heaven to earth right now. And really, if that's the case, then every hardship is only a launching pad to be able to advance God's kingdom, not a place for us to go and need comfort. What we actually need is to move forward. I've always liked the um, passage, I mean the movie that we see of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's Robert Redford and it's Paul Newman, an amazing classic movie. And in it there's this case where they're being pursued and they're on a cliff It's like, maybe 70 to 100 feet up, and there's a gorge and there's a river at the bottom. Their ensuers are just about on them. It's life and death. They're going to, they've come to the end. And Paul Newman looks over at Robert Redford and he says, we're going to need to jump. That's our only chance. And Robert Redford says, I'm not going to uh, jump. I'm just going to fight it out. He says, well, we're going to die. We don't have a chance. Why won't you jump? And he said, okay, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is I don't know how to swim. And Paul Newman looks back at him and says, hell, the fall will probably kill you. And, you know, just, you got to jump. Don't worry about any other options. There's no other options. It's just time to jump. And I love that passage because really, I mean that movie, because what I see in this passage is the ability that we have to just step out to jump and to know that God's going to be able 
uh, to create a win regardless of our circumstances, our situations, and our surroundings. I know that some of us, I mean, we are facing hard things and I don't want to trivialize it at all. We're facing problems in marriages, we have family problems, the um, world around us is changing and it doesn't feel like at all it's changing for the better. It is so complicated and so hard. What I'm suggesting is that we don't back out, but that we step up, that we go all in and spend our lives giving God every opportunity to make a difference by bringing truth into this place that needs it so much right now. So again, press in, move forward. And here's, the, here's one of the beauties of it, is that we can either be moved by what could happen to us, we could sit there and do a cost-benefit analysis and wonder, am I going to hit the bottom and die? How am I, how's it going to Don't worry about speculating how the outcome will be. Just take control of being able to be godly right now. Do what you know is in God's best interest right now and then let the chips fall. And here's the power of it, because if we do that, the next passage says, I fear no evil, for you are with me. What a powerful statement. And so in this, I recognize two things that we as humans often do have to battle fear. We're battling fear, and there's, there's a right uh, reason to look at it. It's legitimate that things are hard and difficult and things can go wrong. And so we have a right to be fearful. But if you add on, I fear no evil because you are with me, that changes everything. And so look, evil exists. It's there. It doesn't say, uh, don't look at evil. It doesn't say, oh, don't worry, evil doesn't exist. No, evil's real, and we're not to be fools. But we also, just as we wouldn't want to ignore evil, we don't want to ignore the reality that God himself is with us right in the middle of that. That's the power. That's what moves us. And so uh, I think that what we need to do as we look around, we need to realize how hard it is. We need to realize that if God doesn't move, then things are going to continue to be out of control. And we need to do everything we can to bring heaven in to control that situation. So it's very simple. If we looked at what I was speaking at before, if our marriage is struggling, if our families are facing hardships and there's failures, then what we really need to do is just bring truth and love and light. We don't need to be shy. We don't need to walk away from it. We come in as best we know how and we present the truth of God and the love of God and then let Him move in the way that only He can. That's what I'm asking you to do, but, but don't run away. Don't try to escape the difficulty. Instead, face it. Then the third element of this passage is it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm so thankful here. Comfort in the Hebrew word means nakan. And nakan is this concept of I can be helped to bring forth change. That's what it really means. It's not this... I can pat you on the back and try to make up for the way you feel. That's not it. It's I can help you to be able to change. It's a powerful word and a powerful truth here. Now look how God is going to create a sense of uh, being changed for us. It says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So your rod, God's rod is actually almost always used in terms of correction. So when you see the word rod in scripture, it means uh, I want to be able to correct you. And so if we truly are correctable, 
then that is an amazing way for God to comfort and change us. If we are not correctable, now you're not battling with that situation. You're actually battling against God. And I'm telling you, it's awesome things to fall into the hand of a living God. Don't fight him. Trust him. That's the fight. Fight to trust him. And so if you think you know it all, can I just tell you you don't? I mean, let's just get that straight. We need to be teachable and correctable. There's so much to learn. There's so much change that can happen in our lives. And there's so much that we can bring to effect change in the lives of others. But it all really hinges on you and I being teachable and correctable. And God loves to do that. And so don't make it hard on him. But know that he is going to correct us and he's going to help us to know how to change. That passage uh, that tells us that do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance is the same concept. Uh, repentance is another word for change. So brothers and sisters, we need to know that God is kind. He is good. And he is causing us to lean into change. And he's doing it in such a way that's in our best interest. Staff, when he says that his staff is there to comfort us, the staff is interesting as a shepherd would use a staff for really mainly two things. One is kind of a weapon, maybe a bat, and the other is a hook. You'll see the staffs have a hook at the end. And that was a way to help snag the, the sheep and pull them back into the fold to pull, or pull them from danger. And I love the fact that as we frame this, we should see God as somebody who's always there always close, always ready to, to snag us from the snares of the enemy, but he is going to let us experience that stuff. He is going to let us go through hardship, but he is there. And, and there is a time when we just need to call on him and say, I need you to break this evil. I need you to use your staff as a weapon. I need help and I need it now. And he's there to do that. And he wants us to be able to even feel empowered so that we're not afraid of evil, but that we're willing to do our best to bring change to it. So he's comforting us for that uh, reason. I, uh, I see a very simple prayer work to move against the forces of evil. It's this simple. When we actually pray and we say through faith and we say, God, I need you to break the evil that's working against me and my family. And you just, you just start sharing that with him. I do it every morning when I wake up because I know evil exists. I know that if I'm attempting to spend my life on the things of God, that there's an enemy who's gonna to try to steal those things, who's gonna to try to kill that, who's gonna to try to destroy what I'm putting into effect. And so every day I, I, I just pray that. And then I walk out in an assurance that the Lord is breaking through the evil because his kingdom has no darkness. His kingdom has no evil. His kingdom is life and liberty, and that's what he's bringing. And so there's going to be a, like a cataclysmic collision when those things hit. And so I need to say, Lord, go before me, break it, and I want to be able to see your life prevail on earth again, your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I want to conclude today by acknowledging those last verses where it's gonna go from here, it's actually gonna to go to a place where it says, and God, you're gonna defeat the enemy so well that you will set a table before me in front of my enemies. Lord, you're gonna set me up for success so much that all of the days of my life, when I look back and see what's really happening, I'm gonna see goodness, I'm gonna see mercy. That's gonna be the result of this life that's given over to following you. And so, 
that is, is what we're aiming for. If your life, when you do an analysis of your life today, and you think of it, how much of it is motivated to spend on advancing God's kingdom? How much of it is stolen by a fear or a concern, or even a misapplication of your time and energies? There's basically two type of people that I'm aware of, uh, and those are believers and unbelievers. And I, I'm not in any way uh, trying to say everybody's the same because we're not. We're all different. We're all made in the very image of God. But when you come right down to it, there's two things that God's really looking for, the two primary things in a human being. And that's that we're either a believer or as an unbeliever or moving towards being a believer. As a believer, this is our call. Our call is to move forward in a victory lap now, not later, now. That's our life. As an unbeliever, if you are an unbeliever, if you're uncertain, if you don't know, I just, I just want you to take a moment and to ask yourself, where is my life leading me? What, what have I been able to accomplish? What's my motivation? Where's my hope? What does eternity mean to me? Am I looking for a sheep? Am I looking for a shepherd? Am I looking for people? Am I looking for the Most High God? What are you spending your life on? What have you given yourself to? If you haven't given yourself to a forever father who's trying to set you up to live a victorious life now and to be a part of his uh, forever kingdom, I'm asking you to reconsider. It's, it's really straightforward. It's not complicated. Don't make it about being religious. Don't make it about being sinful and a terrible sinner. Make it about whether or not you've put your trust in the living God or you have not. If you have not, I'm asking you today just to say something like this. Lord God, I'm not exactly sure how all this works. It's even hard for me to, to know what eternity is because everything I see is so finite. But I want to be able to experience eternal life. I want to have confidence that you do love me, that you love me enough to forgive me and to teach me and to train me and to help me to become close to you while on planet Earth. And I'm asking you right now that you take my life. I want to give my life to you as a gift. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to just die in wonder. I don't want to be a wandering sheep. I want to be your child. And so I give you my life. I give you my name to take your name. I want it to, my life to be for your name's sake. I trust you. Just take my life. Forgive me. Make me your own. And believers, as we've already made a statement like that, I'm asking you now to frame it in terms of, and Lord God, how can I help advance your kingdom? It's almost as if I'm a part of the family business of God. And God, I want to see our family business be successful. I want to make sure that I'm doing my part and that I'm maturing and growing. Lord God, help me to be teachable. Help me to be correctable. Help me to use my life well. That's the exciting life that we're going to see. And as we do that, you're going to see in the promises of God, he's going to say, I'm going to set you up for that. I am setting you up for success, believer. And watch what happens when you follow this path. Thank you. And the Lord bless you.